Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, that is, that's my prayer um, this morning, that we would see you in that way. I wonder for us this morning as we come and we gather together for, for worship, as we gather together at, at church once again, another Sunday where we are singing together and learning from your word and having fellowship and prayer and taking communion, are our, our hearts and our minds really set upon you? Are we distracted by other things? Are we here physically but mentally elsewhere? And if we are thinking of you, Lord, do we behold you rightly? Do we see the loving Father who has been so wonderfully gracious and kind to us in fulfilling the requirements, the righteous requirements that you have made you actually are the one that, that fulfills them and keeps them on our behalf. And are we people that, that understand that in such a deep and personal way that it sets us free to live a life joyfully, sacrificially, wonderfully for the kingdom of God and for the good of those that are around us? Do we live life to glorify you and to enjoy you? I pray, Lord, that you would help us today in both of those ways. Thank you, Lord, for your word, and we thank you for this time together, and we trust in you as we look to you now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> We're going to be in Romans chapter 9. I know the newsletter and everything that we've put out this week says say that we're going to be in, in 9, verse 30, through chapter 10, verse 4. Uh, surprise, we're not going to get through the whole section today. This is what happens, okay, to me. When I'm doing my sermon prep, I kind of sit down, I look at the whole chunk, I go, okay, this is kind of a comprehensive section. I sit down, I chop it up, and then as I go through and I begin to exegete each verse, some verses grow larger, and some verses kind of shrink smaller as to like how the significance of them and what you find the Lord places upon your heart to speak regarding any given verse. And as I was like sitting down and going through each verse, like verse 30, just like it continued to grow and grow and grow. And, you know, I do this thing where I'm like, okay, but I've got to get to these other verses, and I'm writing my sermon notes, and then I'm trying to come to the final version of the sermon that I'm going to put in my notebook, I'm going to bring up here, and I just by the end of the week, I have to come to this conclusion of going, okay, I'm not going to fight it, okay? I'm, Lord, I'm trusting in you. We're just going to verse 30 today, and I'm going to read through the whole section. We're going to read through 930 through chapter 10, verse 4, because it is a comprehensive section. But what I want to do over the next couple of weeks is just chop it up a little, more, a little more finely than I think one, one chunk would do, because I want us to get to what I think is what I see as being a, a prevalent problem within the life of most believers. And it's a misunderstanding of grace in our lives, it's a misunderstanding of the role of the law in our lives. And this, this wrestling, this struggle that I think every believer faces in, um, with legalism. We can be a people of that, that understand the grace of God in one way, intellectually, but we function as legalists in our relationship with God and in our relationship with one another. And so grace becomes like this concept, this biblical doctrine, which I know to be true, but I don't really quite understand it clearly in my relationship with God. Therefore, I don't really express it very well in my relationship horizontally with other people. And I just want us today, we're going to talk a lot about grace, the legalist, and legalism. Um, but that's kind of the, those three broad headings are what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. So if you're a note taker, I have to apologize to you in advance. There are no sermon points. 
This is a pointless sermon <laughs> this morning. Um, partly because a lot of what I'm going to say today is somewhat personal and autobiographical as I have wrestled with these things progressively over the years. And I would say there came a certain period in my life where it became, that, it became clear to me that this was a very, very big problem in my own life personally in 2000, probably around 2015. And the Lord very graciously showed me the problem that the legalist that's still well and alive within me, even as a Christian, was playing in my life. And the progression of which God has worked on me over the years in that way, talk about this a lot recently, but, but the recent work that I think God is showing me in one half, like, look at all the work that I've done in your life. I'm like, yes, rejoicing. Um, but in another way, like, look at the, the ways in which you still function as like the legalist rather than this person that receives grace and is wanting to show other people grace. And I talk about this a lot with my wife because obviously she's the one that knows me better than anybody else and she sees these things in me. Um, and so part of today as we get into verse 30 is going to be what we see in the text, what I've experienced in my own life, and then what I've seen in, wor- in ministering to other people and especially in the, in the realm of counseling and the problems that this brings up in everyday relationships in life. Um, And so we're going to be just in Romans chapter 9, verse 30 um, today. I want to read 9, 30 through chapter 10, verse 4. And then I want to draw our attention to a few things um, that I pray are helpful for us as we get into this this idea and this topic over the next few weeks. So turn with me, if you will, Romans chapter 9, verse 30. I'm going to read through chapter 10, verse 4, and then really just spend our time today looking at verse 30 and considering what it is that's actually being said um, in this passage. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame." Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes." Um, this, this idea, this theme of righteousness, which has not been explicitly talked about in the book of Romans for a while, comes back in prominent view again in, our, in this chunk. And the issue is, how is one made righteous in the eyes of God, which is what is required in order to have fellowship with God, in order to have a relationship with God, you've got to be righteous. And it's not like a partial righteousness. It is a complete and perfect righteousness. That's his standard. And so the, the response is either, okay, you're going to try and work for it, or you're going to receive the righteousness of God by faith, and that is all of God's grace in our lives. And a person that sees that grace and receives it and embraces it and understands it is then to be transformed into being a a gracious person themselves by which they then treat other people with the grace that has been given to them. The problem is, is that we as people, we receive the grace of God in a very real sense in which we're saved, we're born again, we're transferred into the kingdom of God. But then the enemy does this work in our lives to keep us with a misunderstanding of the proper use of the law in the life of the believer. And 
then infects our thinking into where we, as Christians, don't really grow to be very gracious people. We grow to be really legalistic people. Have you ever met and talked to other Christians where you're like, that person doesn't seem very Christ-like, very gracious, very kind. They seem to be really concerned about what I'm doing right and what I'm doing wrong, and that's the only stuff they ever want to talk about. But what about this idea of being saved by the grace of God and that grace to have a, a transforming work in our lives? This is a huge problem, not only for the Jews, as we've seen in Romans, but really this is a man, this is a problem with mankind, because this is a problem that originated in the garden as, as Satan attacks the Word of God, the command, the law of God. And then what does he begin to do? He begins to distort the person and the character of God to Adam and Eve to get them to start to look at God as one who is withholding good from them. Forget all of, forget all of the other stuff in the garden. Forget all of the goodness of God. Let me just focus you down on this one tree that God said you can't partake of. Isn't he being so restrictive? Isn't he, isn't, is, is he, isn't he withholding something good from you that you know you really want? And, and Eve is like, you know what, yeah. And so she looks at the tree, the fruit, and she sees that it's good, and she partakes. And now the image of God is very distorted in her eyes. Entrance of sin into the world. And so this understanding of the grace of God, his law in our lives, our legalistic tendencies to respond to it in inappropriate ways, becomes just the normal operating procedure for all of mankind. Contextually, as we um, remind ourselves of what it is that we've been talking about in the book of Romans, we saw last week Gentile and Jew are being addressed, and they're considered in that order in particular. And we see that in Romans 9, verse 30 through chapter 10, verse 4. And the question is, is knowing that God has vessels of mercy from the Gentiles as well as from the Jews, Paul then goes on to explain where the Jews really went wrong, if Israel had all the Old Testament blessings summarized for them, as we saw in chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, then how in the world were they reduced to just a remnant? How are they reduced to just a remnant if all of these things, Romans 9, 4 and 5, they are the Israelites, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises, the patriarchs. How is it that God had given them all these things and yet they're being reduced to a remnant? And the answer to that question that he gives us in this context at large is they stumbled over Christ. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. And their pursuit of the law, because they thought that righteousness was attainable through the law, they met Christ and they stumbled over him. They stumbled over the grace that God offers to the sinner, regardless of their goodness or their merit, their effort, their pursuit to be good which he gives to them by faith and by faith alone. The idea that righteousness is given, not earned, by God's gracious nature and disposition to give it to his children was, is a major problem to the Jews. And it's a major problem to to, in, to, to mankind, to the legalist. I mean, pick, imagine what is being said here, okay, as we look at chapter 9, verse 30. He's first, he's first addressing the Gentiles. What should we say then, he says? Like, how do we make sense of what it is that we've been talking about? What's the conclusion? And he gives what the conclusion is. Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. Now think about what the statement that he makes there. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, they have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. What were the Gentiles pursuing? How does the scriptures, how do the scriptures 
present and what's the picture that's painted of the Gentile, of the non-believer? Well, we don't have to imagine. I mean, you turn back in Romans chapter 1, and we see a very vivid description of of the Gentile, of the non-believer, and how they live and what it is that they pursued. Right? Romans chapter 1, just beginning in verse 21. This is talking about all mankind. But especially you consider it as it applies to the non-believer, to the Gentile, if you will. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up moral, natural, gave up natural relations for, with women and were consumed with passion with, for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. What was the Gentile pursuing? Sin, idolatry, wickedness, moral failure. And so the, the, really like the problem that presents itself in Romans 9.30 is, this: do you mean to tell me that the Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, like they were not pursuing righteousness and good. What were they pursuing? Sin, wickedness, evil. You mean to tell me that those people that were pursuing that, they're the ones that get the righteousness by your gracious nature, God, by faith and by faith alone, that's it? Like they don't have to, they don't have to do anything. They don't have to pursue the law. They don't have to try real hard. Like merit, effort, work, is like not in the equation at all, you're just going to give them. You're just going to give the sinner that was pursuing these things your righteousness. What does God say? Yes. The legalist has a major problem with this. You mean to tell me Everything that I've worked so hard for that I still don't have, you're just going to give to them? To that worm-ridden filth? Don't you know, God, like how they live? Don't you see the gutter? They're not even pursuing. They're not even trying. They're not even trying to live a righteous life to you. And and you're just going to give them grace. You're just going to forgive them? You're just like, the slate is wiped clean? That's not fair, is what the legalist says. And oftentimes, we function the same way. When someone wrongs you, what do you want? What if God were to show them the grace of free pardon and forgiveness? No. No, that's not no, that's not how this is supposed to work, God. You're supposed to punish them for what they did to me. And you're just going to show that person grace? That's not right. That's not fair. The legalist has a major problem with God's grace, his unmerited favor shown in their lives. Calvin says this in his commentary on this passage, nothing appeared more unreasonable or less befitting than that the Gentile who, having no concern for righteousness, rolled themselves in in the moral decay of their flesh should be called to partake of salvation and obtain righteousness. Nothing was more unreasonable in their mind than that the Gentile who did not pursue righteousness 
received it in full by God's gracious nature, by faith, and by faith alone. I think Sinclair Ferguson does a good job in helping us understand why this is the case. The essence of legalism, he says, is a heart distortion of the graciousness of God and the God of grace. It's a heart distortion. The graciousness of God and the God of grace. Think of a few of the things that have been taught to us in the book of Romans regarding one who receives the grace of God. These are, I'll, I'll just share with you a few of my own favorites as we've been going through the book of Romans. I got to tell you what, the book of Romans has been so helpful for me personally. Imagine that, you know, when you're preaching through a book, you're like affected by it and changed by it. Romans chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That's the person who stands in a position of the grace of God. Romans 5, 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us as a person who stands in a position of, of, of receiving God's grace, I know that the love of God has been poured out into my spirit, in, into me through the Holy Spirit. Chapter six, verse three. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? You stand in a position of God's grace You've been baptized into Christ. You think about Romans 8. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, 8.1, and then 8.10 tells us that Christ is in us. Are we deserving of such an intimate and wonderful union with this God of grace? Certainly not. And perhaps one of my favorites that we've come across so far, Romans 8, 26 and 27. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. As you stand in this gracious relationship with God, you don't even know what to say. You don't even know what to pray at times. And the Holy Spirit prays for you according to God's will for you, which I find remarkably comforting and encouraging. The times where I don't know what to do, I don't know what to say, I don't know how to make sense out of life, the Spirit of God is interceding and praying God's will on my behalf, on your behalf as his child. Man, if, if that's not a gift of God's grace towards us, I don't know what is. And, and it's not just like temporarily, oh, he doesn't know what to say. Let me step in here and pray. No, like the Spirit of God is consistently, without ceasing, always interceding and praying for God's children according to the will of God. You think about these things that are for the person that receives the grace of God. The person that was not pursuing righteousness gets the Spirit of God to, to, to live within them and pray for them. The person that was not pursuing God gets, remembers that their lawless deeds are forgiven, and their, their sins and their iniquities are remembered no more, simply because of God's gracious nature to save them. And we know that this is true because he says in 3.24, right? We know 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justified by grace. His gracious nature to impart faith to a people that were not 
pursuing him. I mean, isn't that the, how many, isn't that the story of many of us in this room? I was, we were not pursuing God. Think about your own, for some of you in this room, like, you, you, you know, you know, because your life was going a particular direction and you were not pursuing righteousness or God. And, and he, what did he do? He came to you, a vessel that he determined was going to be a vessel of mercy. And he said, you're mine. You're pursuing yourself, your selfishness, immorality, wickedness, all those things. And because you're a vessel of mercy, I'm pulling, in, I'm pulling you out and you're mine. Because of my gracious nature and disposition. And guess what? All of the gifts that are in my son are yours in full. How do you, how do you respond when God saves the, those people in your mind that are like, oh, they're just the dregs of society? Do you rejoice that the grace of God actually saved someone that was not pursuing goodness we're talking about people that, like, they're, they're, they're not even trying to be good people, good, like, citizens. They're, like, willingly hurting other people. And they go to jail. What if someone, out of their wickedness of their own heart, did something to you or to your family member, somebody that you loved, and they hurt you deeply, and, and then they were sent to jail? And then while in jail, they came to know Christ. Would you be happy? Or would you be like, that's not fair. That scumbag who did that to me, to my children, to, to my parents, whoever. And they just get to get off with the grace of God. I'm going to spend an eternity with that person. That's not right. We want people to pay. We like it. Why? Because we, don't un because we don't understand grace and because we're legalists by nature. We want people to pay. This is why, think about this, why are so many parables set up to address this problem? You think of the parable of the unforgiving servant, Matthew 18, the legalist right, forgiven of this huge debt, and then what does he do? Someone, oh, he comes across this guy who owes him a little bit, begins to choke him. I'm not letting you go until you have paid me. Doesn't understand grace, what it's like to be forgiven and set free from a debt you can't pay, an astronomical debt you can't pay, and then you come across someone else who still owes you, someone who's wronged you, and what do you do? You choke him. Pay right now. That's the legalist. You think of the parable of the vineyard workers in Matthew 20, right? The guys who get hired at the beginning of the day, they're told you're going to make this much money at the beginning of the day. And then he hires guys, the, the master hires another set of guys at the end of the day. And the guys who are hired to work one hour and the guys who are hired at the morn, in the morning that worked eight hours, they're paid the same amount. And what do the guys who are hired early on in the morning do? You're not being fair. What are they saying? I don't like your grace. I don't like the fact that, well, didn't I, didn't we agree on this wage? Well, yeah, of course. But that's beside the point. The point is, right, I think I deserve more, deserve better. You, okay, I've worked eight hours. You're going to pay the guy who worked one hour the same amount as me who worked eight, who worked right? Eight hours. They don't understand grace. They don't understand the thief on the cross. They don't understand many of the things that Christ taught them. This is the same problem with, that occurred within um, Mary and Martha. Martha's out working, serving, doing this and that. Mary's just sitting at Jesus' feet. What's, Mary, what's Martha's beef? Would you plead, Jesus, okay, 
time out. Would you please tell Mary, get off her tush and start to help me around the house because there's stuff to do? And Jesus is like, Martha, she's actually chosen what's better. I'm not going to take it away from her. Martha's the legalist. Don't you, we're, there's stuff to do. Don't you see? I'm serving. This, 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 my sister, she's just sitting at your feet doing nothing, just receiving from you. Martha's the legalist. Maybe the parable that paints it the most clearly for us, if you want to turn there, is Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. Set the scene for three parables that Jesus is going to tell. And I'm just going to cover one of them. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Oh my goodness. Pharisees are going to have an issue. Jesus is hanging out with those wicked, Gentile, sinful people. Tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Well, if you've been here on Wednesday nights, we know John 6, the Son is only receiving those whom the Father is giving to him. Who's the Father giving to him? These sinful people. Oh, they're so gross. He's, look at the people he's receiving, who he's sitting and eating with. Sinners. And he eats with them. And then so he tells them three parables. And the third one is the parable of the prodigal son. And we know the parable of the prodigal son. Son gets his inheritance, goes and squanders it in worldly, sinful living. Comes to his senses, I remember my father. Let me go back home. Maybe he'll just accept me as a servant. Goes back home. What does the father do? Runs to him. Embraces him. What's he showing him? Grace. You don't have to pay. Who in the parable has a major problem with this? The older brother. The older brother's the legalist. Drop down to Luke 15, verse 25. The father's gone out. He's gathered the son in. Verse 24, for this my son was dead. He is alive he was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. And the older brother was so happy that his younger brother was finally home. Older brother's the legalist. If that guy ever comes home, I know what he's going to get. And he's not getting it. He thinks the brother should pay. But he's getting grace. But he was angry and he refused. He refused to go in. And his father came out to him and entreated him. And he answered his father, look, these many years, I have served you. I've been working. I've been pursuing your favor, righteousness. And I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends, legalism. But when this son of yours, who has devoured, oh, by the way, this is what the legalist does. Let me remind you of what a loser my brother is, dad. He devoured your property with prostitutes. Like, the dude went and slept with prostitutes. 
Was he pursuing right? Oh, give me my inheritance so I can go pursue a life of, of, of good moral righteousness. No, like give me my inheritance so I can squander it on, on wickedness and sin. Prostitutes, and you killed the fattened calf for him, for, for this brother of mine. I've been at home working hard, pursuing your favor. You didn't, never, never gave me a goat. This son of yours, He's just going to go out and he's going to squander the inheritance. And he's going to come home and you're going to celebrate and you're going to kill the fattened calf for him. No. No. I'm not going into that party. I don't want any part of this grace that you're giving him. He should be paying. That's what he should do. That's the heart of the legalist, doesn't understand the grace of God. Father says to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and he is alive. He was lost and is found. The legalist says, you're just gonna let these people pursue sin you, the, 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 the non-believer, you're just going to let him pursue sin and unrighteousness. And you're going to kill, not the fattened calf, you're going to kill your son for them? I'm over here trying hard, which we'll get into next week, Lord willing. Um, more of the idea of, of what they were pursuing, the law and righteousness and stuff like that. But you've got to understand the heart of the problem. These people are, the legalist says, they're not even trying. They're pursuing their own selfishness, and you're going to kill your son for them. That's exactly what he does. This is the heart of justification by faith, by God's grace. The person that doesn't understand the grace of God can't, can't fathom this idea. And even the Christian that understands the grace of God still can oftentimes function as the legalist because they still have a distorted view of the grace of God or the, and the God of all grace. John Colquhoun was a Scottish minister in the late 1700s. And this is kind of a long quote, but I want to I share it with you because I think he hits well what it is that believers even still can struggle with. When a man is driven, or woman, right? A person, a believer. When a believer is driven to acts of obedience by dread of God's wrath revealed in the law and not drawn to them by the belief in his love revealed in the gospel, when he fears God because of his power and justice and not because of his goodness, when he regards God more as an avenging judge than as a compassionate friend and father, and when he contemplates God rather as terrible in majesty than as infinite in grace and mercy, he shows that he is under the dominion or at least under the prevalence of a legal spirit. When his hope of divine mercy is raised by the liveliness of his obedience and not by discoveries of the freeness and riches of redeeming grace offered to him in the gospel, or when he expects eternal life, not as the gift of God through Jesus Christ, but as a recompense from God for his own obedience and suffering, he plainly shows that he is under the power of a legal spirit. I talked about this a couple weeks ago on a Wednesday night. One of the most dangerous things that you can do is look 
to your own goodness and your own obedience as the grounds for your assurance of faith. And the reason why we tend to do this is because we, what still clings is this legalism that God will love me and I'm assured of his goodness and his grace in my life because I've really tried very hard to be a good little Christian boy or Christian girl. That's the legalistic mindset and spirit. Rather than, and, and it's because we view God as a judge. He's up there as a child tallying, oh, you've done this wrong, you've done this wrong, you've done this right, you've done this right. And if your rights outweigh your wrongs, then you feel like God loves you more than if your wrongs outweigh your rights. With the, the legalistic spirit that lives on within the Christian views God as the judge who is just keeping record of right and wrong, ready to judge accordingly, rather than the loving Father that has already promised you all that is in Christ, knowing that you weren't good to begin with. And so we see God in terms of this legalistic spirit rather than from the lens of him being gracious and kind and compassionate, which is what he proved himself to be from the beginning when he saved you. And he continues to be that in your life. But our view of God, in our, when we distort our view of God and we look at him through the legalistic framework, then it not only changes our relationship with God, but then it inherently changes my relationship with those who are around me. If my relationship with God is based upon works and goodness and my faithfulness and my obedience, then guess what I do? I judge my relationships with other people based upon your goodness, your works, and your obedience. As long as you're good to me and nice to me and kind to me, I'm good and nice and kind to you. Because that's how you view your relationship with God. One of the most difficult things that a person who struggles with a legalistic spirit can do is admit wrong and fault. To confess where they've been wrong. Why? Because what hangs in the balance in their mind is the love of God. When I'm good and I'm obedient and I'm getting it right, then God loves me so much. But when I'm wrong and I'm disobedient, and I fail, yes, he still loves me, but it's kind of like, eh, go to your room. I just, I can't, don't, I can't even look at you right now. Just get out of here. This is this legalistic framework in which we, we view God. Once the believer comes to the conclusion of knowing that God's love changes for you not, his mercies faileth not, regardless of how good you're doing or how bad you're doing, it, 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 you really begin to understand the grace of God in your life. Now, it's not to say that, yeah, okay, you can live whatever you want. That's the other problem of not understanding the law. The, the legalists and the antinomian, they got the same problem. They don't understand the law and they don't understand grace. But when you come to the conclusion of understanding that God's love for you is already full and final, not because you're good, and faithful and obedient, but because Christ has been on your behalf, you realize what it is that you've been given. You know when that really shines? Not when you're being good, when you've done bad. When you know that you've disobeyed the Lord and you come to the conclusion and the realization that his love didn't change for me one bit, what does that make you want to do? This is awesome. I'm just going to continue to go live how I want. No, 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 no. The person who is in Christ says, I've been living this way and I know what it is that I deserve. I, I know how I would treat someone else if they were treating me this way. You know what they would get? Law. But what do I get in you, God? I get the grace of God fully for me in Christ. That doesn't make me want to go live a life of sin. That makes me want to live a life of worship to him. 
how could one be so gracious and merciful and kind to me, continue to move toward me, not as I deserve, but as, as he declared it to be for me in Christ. What, this is why Paul belabors this point in Romans 8. What can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? There's nothing that can separate you from his love. He, and he doesn't change. So his love for you is unchanging. When, when the Christian begins to, to really chew upon that, live there, it radically changes their relationship with God and it radically changes their relationship with other people. Like I said, the legalist struggles to confess wrongdoing because when they're wrong, they feel like God doesn't love them as much. And the most unbearable idea and thought in the world for the child of God is to think God's love for me changes rather than, and so what do they do? They double down on being right because if they're wrong, they're not as loved by God. And the idea of not as, being not as loved by God as, as I am when I'm right is just too scary of a prospect. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to double down on being right. And so the legalist finds it very, very difficult to admit wrong and confess wrong and fault because their very relationship with God is what hangs in the balance. When you realize that that's not the case, oh, you're free. I sinned against you. I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? You know what? Guess what? Probably not going to be the last time I sin against you too. And you can move towards other people rather than in a, you know, keeping tabs of right and wrong. You move towards other people with a spirit of grace and understanding and compassion and mercy. Me, me pursuing you with love is not based upon you treating me well. Because God's pursuit of me in love is not based upon me treating him well. I've already proven that I can't do that. I don't do that. And yet he still pursues. And, and, and even his discipline is out of love for us. You see why I can't get out of verse 30. I, I could probably preach verse 30 next week. You know, maybe. Who knows? Um, I, 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 think about this way. I know we've got, we've got to close. Think about this way. Think about it this way. Think about the way this legalistic spirit will affect your marriage, affect your parenting. I'm only going, I, I, will, be, I will move towards my spouse when they are moving towards me. But if my spouse hurts me or wrongs me, pull away. That's the legalistic spirit. Our, our relationship, intimacy, and, um, you know, separation are based upon how we treat one another. Think about how that affects you as a parent. Relation, intimacy with your kids, separation from your kids is dependent upon how, how good and well-behaved they are and if they don't embarrass you in public. Rather than the person of grace is always that understands and appropriates and receives and embraces the grace of God for them, that is in Christ, is always moving towards other people to show them what has been shown to them by God. Can we rejoice when God gives grace? Can you be a conduit of God's grace in the lives of other people, or must we keep a record of every wrong and make sure that they're accounted for? And secondly, or thirdly, do you, we really understand the gospel? Because what, this is, what all of this is built upon is really understanding the gospel. 
Do you really understand that you have the fullness of the grace of God poured out into your life fully, finally, completely for all time that that cannot change? Or is there part of your function in your life where you do, you do believe that the grace of God and his love and his care for you is somewhat determined upon your goodness and pleasure in his sight? One reveals a heart of grace and will reveal itself in our relationships. The other one will reveal, it will reveal a heart of legalism that will reveal itself in our relationships as well. This is the time in our service where we're going to partake of communion. Why do we do this every week? What are, you, what are you partaking of? When you hold that cracker and that juice, what are you thinking of? Oh, man. Let me ask you this. Is this what you think? Was I good enough this week to, 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 to partake of communion? Don't be shy. I'm right there with you. That's the legalistic spirit. You know what the answer to that question is? No, you weren't good enough this week to partake of communion. That's why we partake of it. That's why this is a time of worship and a time of celebration. Because I'm not looking to myself. I'm looking to him. That's why Robert Murray McShane said, for every one look at yourself, take 10 looks to Christ. One look at yourself, you find you're completely disqualified. You have to cultivate the habit of looking to Christ, of saying, I'm partaking of this communion, not because I was good enough or I was worthy this week, but because of Christ and, 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 and his goodness on my behalf, and he's invited me to the table. And so what do I do when I come to the table and he tells me to eat? I eat. And I'm thankful and I'm grateful to him, what he's done and what he's given to me. So if you're here today and you're visiting and you know Christ by faith and by faith alone, no merit, no, no effort, you were like, yeah, I was pursuing sinfulness and I now know what it's like to be living in the, the gracious relationship with God by faith and by faith alone, partake with us, please. Celebrate together. Let's do this. But if you're thinking, you're here today, and, and you're thinking that you're going to be made right with God or you're going to dwell with him for all of eternity based upon any sort of personal level of goodness, morality, righteousness, you're sadly mistaken. And please don't partake, but to consider the invitation of Christ where he says, come to me and I will give you rest. If you come to him for rest today by faith, he will receive you and you will live in his grace forever. So the elements are on the tables. You can get those, return back to your seat for a time of prayer, meditation, and we will partake of the elements together here shortly.